The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage Christian Fellowship. Welcome. Glad you guys are here. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And hey, this morning is a communion Sunday, so I just want to remind you, after the message, Pastor Jeremy will be up here, and he's going to be leading us in communion. So if you did not get a communion cup, I just want to remind you they're outside the doors. You can wait till the, the, the first song begins to go get it. You can go get it now. I just want to uh, remind you that, to hold on to those until after the message. We'll, we'll be taking communion together. I want to welcome you. We are in a series we started last week. We're calling it Giving the Greatest Gift. We're taking a pause from our series in Mark, and we're looking at uh, this kind of a, a four-week series. We're going to stay in the Gospel of Luke for this series, sort of an Advent Christmas-themed series, but what we're looking at is we're looking at what does it mean that, 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 that Jesus Christ is, is the greatest gift that has ever been given. So there's like in Romans, we, we read that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, this gift of salvation, this gift of eternal love, this gift of forgiveness that comes from God. And so we're looking at that and then asking those questions. And, and Aaron kicked us off last week of, of, of how are we, as men and women who are, have, been, have been saved by God, born into the family of God, redeemed, We've got this amazing treasure, this amazing truth that lives within us. How is God calling us to be a part of what he is doing to share that message of hope with the world around us? If you were here last week, Aaron was in Luke chapter 2, and we looked at when Jesus was eight days old, him and his, uh, his parents came into the temple, and there was a man named Simeon there, and Simeon uh, held up Jesus and spoke a prophetic word about Jesus being a, being a light for all people, being a light for the Gentiles, and we, we begin to see the missional heart of God. We, we, we begin to see that, you know, Jesus in Luke 19, 10, he said that his, his purpose was to seek and save the lost. And we, we see in the incarnation, in Jesus becoming flesh, the very missional heart of God to, to, to send Jesus to a, to a fallen and broken place that, that, that men and women might be redeemed. And as we looked at the text, Aaron challenged us to consider if our heart reflects the heart of God to others, and he challenged us to consider if our lives testify to authentic life change. And then he invited us to pray. And many of you joined us as we prayed kind of from our homes and neighborhoods around the Rogue Valley on Thursday night. We prayed asking God to do that very thing, to, to do a work within us by the power of his spirit that we might be burdened for those that are far from God. It's not something we can fake or conjure up apart from the spirit of God working in us, but we're asking God to be at work in our church that our hearts might be burdened for the things that burden God's hearts, that our, our, our eyes might see the world the way God sees the world. And that was our prayer. And so today, we're going to be back in Luke's gospel. We're actually going to be in two sections. The majority of today's message is going to be in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. But before we go there, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. My family and I, we're, doing the, we're reading through the gospel of Luke for our, uh, our Advent uh, devotions. And, and we were just reading this text last night. And, and here we are in Luke chapter 4. By way of quick setup, as we get ready to read this, you know, the... God had been silent for 400 years. The people of Israel were under Roman occupation. They were feeling the pressure of, of Rome. Uh, God had been quiet for a long time. They were desperate for God's deliverer, his redeemer, the promised one, the Messiah to come. And they're waiting patiently, and all they heard was silence. Well, then Mark's gospel opens up, and we just hear God shouting from the heavens. 
We see the angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah in the temple. We see the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, telling her she's going to conceive a son. We see an angel of the Lord appearing to the shepherds, announcing the birth of Jesus. We see uh, Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, filled with the Spirit, uh, uttering prophetic words over Mary. We see Mary singing this beautiful song, the Magnificat. We see Zechariah uh, speaking prophecy at the end of chapter 1. We hear God's voice thundering down from heaven. Uh, as he affirms Jesus is his son and he is pleased with him. And so after 400 years of silence, the gospel of Luke opens up to the thundering sound of God speaking again. God doesn't move on planet earth. He's doing something powerful and profound. And everybody stands up and takes notice. This takes us to chapter 4. Jesus had just been led out into the desert where he was tempted by Satan after his baptism. And if you remember when we were studying Mark a couple weeks ago, Jesus said that no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder the house unless the strong man is first bound. He was talking about Satan. When Jesus went out into the wilderness and he he took the best shot Satan had to offer and he didn't falter and he, he, he came out victorious over Satan, he did the thing Adam couldn't do. In the Garden of Eden, Adam fell prey to the temptation of the enemy. So Jesus, the second Adam, came and he was victorious over the temptation of Satan, thus binding the strong man. And then here, we see Jesus stepping into his ministry. The strong man has been bound. Jesus has come to do his thing on planet Earth. And here's how his ministry begins, beginning in chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the moment Jesus begins his public ministry. He'd been ministering in Judea to the south, but here is the launch of what would become his public ministry in the region of Galilee. And he chooses to go to a synagogue uh, on Saturday. Now, this was in his hometown. No doubt the people in the synagogue saw little baby Jesus grow up in the church. He was, you know, he was Joseph and Mary's boy. No doubt he saw the faces of people that he recognized there. They're trying to reconcile. How could Joseph, the the boy, the son of the carpenter, how could he be this, this man here? And Jesus enters the synagogue, knowing those who are there, those there knowing who he is, and he's given the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, written some 700 years before Jesus. And he opens it up, and he reads from verse 61, or chapter 61 and chapter 58, and then he sits down. And the text that he chose was messianic text. It was text that spoke about the coming of Jesus. I mean, written 700 years before Jesus, this was a prophecy that talked about God's coming deliverer, about his Messiah. Jesus reads this text, this prophecy, and he sits down, and he says... That has come true today in me. I am he. I am the Messiah. I have come to do the very thing God has promised to do. And as I look at what he says, the text he chooses to read, it gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. It gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. Why did Jesus come? Well, look at verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, as he reads from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and liberty to those who are oppressed. He's been sent. Jesus was sent 
The incarnation happened. God became flesh. Jesus, God's Messiah, entered human history. The creator had entered his own creation. The triune God could have remained, could have remained comfortably in heaven, but instead Jesus was sent. Why? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us the poor needed proclamation of good news. The captives needed proclamation of liberty. The blind needed sight. The oppressed needed liberation. The compassionate heart of God sees the poor, sees the compassionate, or the captive rather, sees the blind, sees the oppressed, and Jesus draws near. The compassion of God caused Jesus to draw near. And we're going to come back to that as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I want to just show our, our handbook here a little bit for what we're going to do for the next three weeks. I think this is very simple, the, the, the trajectory of these next three messages. We, we prayed last week that God would burden our heart for what burdens his heart, that we wouldn't be indifferent about those in our neighborhood and those in our community and those in our lives that don't know Jesus, that we would be burdened for those that are separated from God and, and that God would do something in us, uh, would, would stir within us, that we would lift our eyes up and see people the way he sees people. So when God does that, our hope is, what we're trying to do here is we, want, we believe that God has called us to, not, to see stranger as neighbor. And when we begin to see the strangers among us as neighbors, something happens. There's, there's compassion, there's love. And when we begin to see neighbor as neighbor, then we, we begin to see them as friend. And there becomes relationship and something meaningful happens. And when, we, when a stranger goes from neighbor to friend, we then have an opportunity to lead them into the family of God. This is mission. This is what we're going to do for the next three weeks is talk about what it looks like for you and me, for us as a church and for us individually, to see the stranger as neighbor, to see the neighbor as friend, and to lead the friend into the family of God. Amen? Would you pray with me? Oh God, I thank you so much for the opportunity you've given us today as the body of Christ here at Heritage to gather in this place and God, to, to sing songs, uh, to, to worship you in our hearts and minds, to, to, to open up your word, to sit under the truth of your word. God, I ask that by the power of your spirit today, God, that you would meet us in this place and you would bring conviction where appropriate, God. You'd open our eyes, you would stir in our midst and and God, I ask that you, would, that you would do a work at Heritage Christian Fellowship, God, where we would, we would be troubled with the things that trouble you. And we would see the world the way you see the world, and we would learn to get off our hands and, and be used by you, sent by you for your glory to be your hands and feet and mouthpiece of the world around us. So God, meet us today. Be glorified today in our midst. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, would you turn now with me to Luke 10? The parable of the Good Samaritan. There was this religious lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament law, who came to Jesus, and he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the setup to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus, uh, he returned the question with a question, as, you know, wise people often do. He said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he puts the question back on the lawyer. The religious lawyer gives the textbook answer. In verse 27 of chapter 10, the lawyer says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I can imagine the lawyer is proud. He had the right answer, ready-made perfect answer. And Jesus simply replied, very kind reply, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But it wasn't enough for the lawyer. Here's where our text picks up, verse 29. Rather than take Jesus' words and, and go and love God and go and love his neighbor, we see here that in verse 29, he, the, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And that is the very question we're seeking to answer today. Who is your neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who is our neighbor? 
And there can be an argument to be made that, that our neighbors are anybody on planet Earth. We have neighbors in Uganda. In a spiritual sense, that's true. But I want to, for the sake of this series, and for the sake of argument today, I, I want us to think of this phrase, neighbor or neighborhood, meaning those men and women who are within close proximity to you, logistically, literally. Those people to your north, east, south, and west of your home. Those people that you interact with in your job or at school, on your sports teams. Those people you interact with when you're doing leisurely things in the community, the, the, the people you recreate with, those family relatives who you interact with, neighbors who are within arm's reach of you. These are your, your uh, physical neighbors. These are your classmates and your teammates and your coworkers and your social acquaintances, your family. Perhaps it's a teacher or a coach. And so as we look at this Giving the Greatest Gift series, I, I want you and me to consider how to turn the stranger in our midst into a neighbor. It's a heart thing. The neighbor we're called to love is often not the one we choose, but the one God chooses for us. And how might God be, and who might God be choosing in your midst to be your neighbor today? Uh, Jessica was, uh, uh, kind of made my life a little bit difficult when I first met her. Uh, she was my neighbor to the immediate north. We lived there just a couple of months, and we lived in a very tight-packed neighborhood. I could literally reach out and touch her house. Her husband, Juan, they had, they, at that point, had not yet had their kids. They had, she was pregnant with twins when we moved in. And she just got a new vehicle. She was very proud of her new vehicle. I barely knew Jessica when I get a knock on my door. And she, I open up the door, and it's Jessica, and she looks frustrated and angry. And, and she tells me there's a dent in her car. So we walk back behind our houses where she parks her car next to my, my yard. And she believes that a branch fell out of the tree in my yard and landed on her brand-new vehicle and put a little ding in the hood. And I said, oh, okay, act of God, you have insurance for these things, right? She's like, yeah, but I want you to pay for it. I was like, okay, uh, don't really know you, don't really start off our friendship like this. So I went back and talked to my wife, and so I'm like, okay, Jessica, what's the deductible I'll pay it? So I wrote a check for $500, and I paid it. And I told some friends, that they're like, why would you do that? I'm like, well, number one, I had to live next to this person for the next X amount of years, and I don't want it to be awkward and weird. But I thought to myself, what's $500? It's 500 bucks. Like, I want to maintain relationship with Jessica. I want to know her, and I want to know her husband, Juan. I don't want to start off in a weird spot. It was a, it was a small price to pay for us to have, uh, at least begin our relationship on some sort of a meaningful basis. And, you know, we lived there nine years, and we got to know Jessica and Juan and, 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 and Emiliano and Viviana. They're, they're awesome little kids. And we had a thousand conversations. I wish I could say that Jessica fell to her knees and received Jesus. I don't know if she has or not. I, th there was a thousand conversations about God, about the Bible, about truth about parenting, and I'm so thankful for the time I got to spend with Jessica and Juan before we moved to, to Oregon. And I remember one night before, I, I, wasn't even, I was out winter camping, and Jessica had actually fallen right before we moved in her backyard, and she broke her leg, and she had a compound fracture, and she was screaming in horror in the backyard, and she was screaming for my wife, and my wife got to go out there and hold Jessica, and I just wonder, what would have what, what, what happened if her and I would have just squabbled over a few dollars on day one? See, see being, a, being a neighbor, it comes with a cost sometimes. It's not easy, but, but it's worth it. And so the question I want you to continue to ask yourself today, the question I'm asking myself, the question we're asking ourselves today is, who is your neighbor? May you, may I, may we learn to see the stranger as neighbor. I'm sure you've got some neighbors in your life that you enjoy and love, whether they're actual neighbors or they're coworkers or acquaintances. But my guess is there's people in your midst, uh, people who you live around, neighbors who you don't necessarily care for too much. And my guess is there's some neighbors you don't know. And there's probably some neighbors you actually just don't like at all. But who's your neighbor? That's the question the religious lawyer asked Jesus. 
as he was trying to figure out who his neighbor was in the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's where we pick up in Luke chapter 10. Beginning in verse 29, let's read the whole parable. Desiring to justify himself, the lawyer said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Here's the answer of Jesus. He replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and, kept and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him and had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took, two, took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Then Jesus looks up to the lawyer, and he says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. I mean, surely this lawyer, this, this Hebrew elite uh, would have been absolutely convinced that Jesus was going to tell a story where, where the Hebrew uh, was going to be the hero, the, the Levite or the priest, but no, the, the Samaritan was the hero. Certainly that was not going to be in the mind of this lawyer when he asked Jesus this question. And yet after all is said and done, after telling the story, Jesus looks at this man as he's squirming and angry and frustrated that Jesus dare tell such a scandalous story. And he says, which one of these do you think proved to be a neighbor? And the man can't even bring himself to mention the word Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. To a Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. What was the deal with Samaritans? Well, there was a long and storied animosity that existed between Samaritans and Jews. It had a long history. It goes back 700 years beforehand, before this interaction would have taken place. When the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom where the Samaritans lived, they, they, they would have uh, intermarried with Samaritans. And they would have had a racially mixed group of people, so there's lots of racial tension. Samaritans were considered half-breeds, less than second-class citizens on the lower rung of society. There was segregation. Jews wouldn't even go through Samaria. They'd take the long way to Jerusalem because they didn't want to have to walk through Samaria. Think Jim Crow South America, 1930s, 1940s, only worse. Their own restaurants, their own water fountains, their own pools. If you read through the letter of, of the Apostle Paul, it's interesting when you have this lens, when you recognize there was tremendous racial tension that existed in the New Testament. When you read through the Apostle Paul's letters, it's incredible how much time and space he gives to addressing this in his letters. He was continually dealing with the division along racial lines that took place within the early church. The reality is that the Jews and Samaritans did not integrate with one another. And it was anti-gospel. And Paul called it out as anti-gospel. There's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul makes it very clear. Samaritans had also broken away from the orthodox religion of the Jews. So in addition to the racial tension, there was this religious tension that existed. And all of this is what makes this parable so shocking to the good Hebrew ear. The good Hebrew would have been shocked that Jesus, this teacher, would have dared to make a dirty Samaritan the hero of the story. And you know, I, as I'm telling that story, my guess is you're like me, you're looking at the, the landscape of America today. I see something very similar in our land. Now, I didn't live through the civil rights movement of the 60s. Certainly didn't live through the civil war of the 1860s. But I can't think of a time in my life where there's been more polarization in our land, can you? It's incredible. And with it comes just such hatred. 
I see the sinister nature of racial division and political division fracturing our lands and even fracturing our churches. I see it when we enter into political seasons. I see neighborhoods drawing lines along political and racial lines. It's easy to detect the enemy nowadays because they have a sign in their front yard or a bumper sticker on their car or we just look at their social media posts and we, without ever saying hi, knowing nothing about them as a human being, we can look at their political position and we can discount them entirely. Isn't that crazy? I don't know anything about this person, but because of the sign in their front yard, they're dead to me. Long before any sort of neighborly interaction can happen, we can entirely write people off because the, the battle lines have been drawn. Relationship is impossible put a quote in my Facebook a couple weeks ago. I was reading through a book on discipleship, and the author was, was telling this really interesting story about a Jewish author and a, and, a, and, a, and a poet, an English poet. Martin Buber was the author, and T.S. Eliot was the poet, and they were opposites in every way. And they one time met each other, and someone was asking Martin Buber about, hey, what was the meeting like with T.S. Eliot? Because you guys are so radically different, and your opinions are so starkly different. And kind of perplexed, Buber said, when I meet a man, I'm not concerned about his opinions, but I'm concerned with the man. What a novel idea. When I was living in Milwaukee, I was a chaplain for the police department, and one time I got a phone call that there was a house fire. I wasn't a chaplain for the fire department, but I thought I would go. It was by my church. So I go to this house that had just burned to the ground, and I see someone I know, another Jessica, not the one that lived next to me, and I see someone I know, and it's Jessica. She had called to have me come because her friend had just lost uh, the house. So I go up there, and, and Jessica introduces me to this other person who was also called Jessica. Didn't do that by design. All three people in my story said, hey, Jessica. And, uh, and so I go to shake uh, uh, Jessica 3.0's hands, and Jessica says, hi, I'm a pagan and I'm transgender. First words out of Jessica's mouth. I was like, okay. I'm really sorry you lost your house. Tell me about it. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm a pagan and I'm transgender. You probably don't want to be here. It's like, hey, I'm a guest on your land. Tell me about your house. Tell me about what you lost today. We sat down and maybe spent 45 minutes talking with Jessica. And then I left. Tried to show compassion and love and be present. Didn't pray because I didn't think a pagan would want me to pray in Jesus' name. So I didn't pray. But I left. Found out later that later on that day, Jessica had walked through the, the steaming, smoldering embers of this house, breathed in some noxious fumes, went into some asthmatic attack, had to get rushed to the hospital, was in a coma. This person I had met with. Uh, Jessica's parents, who are out of state, fly in, come to my church the following Sunday, unbeknownst to me. Had a chance to get to know who Pastor Paul was, who other people were talking about, because Jessica was treated nicely by this random chaplain. The next week, I'm, I'm, I've been praying for, for Jessica, praying for recovery, not knowing what's going on in Jessica's life, living or not. And I'm standing in the front of my church, saying goodbye to everybody as they leave. And who walks up but Jessica, the transgender pagan walks up and gives me a huge hug and tells me this story about how much the prayers meant. I, and I wish I could take this story all the way to the end and Jessica is walking with Jesus and worshiping today. I don't know where Jessica's at today. Had multiple opportunities to interact, uh, but I know that the gospel seeds were planted and I know Jessica was loved and I know if she thinks about who Jesus is and those who represent Jesus, at least one person in her life represent Jesus the way he should be represented to this person who is far from God. The words of Paul echo in my mind. If I speak of tongues, of men, or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and cannot fathom, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, uh, faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, then I may boast, but have not love, I gain nothing. Isn't that interesting? 
You see, if we don't see the stranger as neighbor, if we don't love those men and women God puts in our midst, we're clanging cymbals. We're nothing. We gain nothing. As James would say, our religion is useless. And so as we look at the Samaritan, what can we learn about what it means to be neighbor? What can we learn about what it means to be neighbor by looking at this story Jesus told as an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? This is exactly how Jesus wants us to think what neighboring looks like. Look at verse 33. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, underline these three words if you're an underliner or a highlighter, he had compassion. He had compassion. I've used this word in the past. I don't know a whole lot of Greek. I know this Greek because it's an awesome word. It's splachnizomai. In this word, splachnizomai, it means to be moved as to one's bowels. It's to be moved with compassion. It's to have your guts ripped out. It's to have your heart ripped out. It's to, it's to look upon someone's uh, compromised condition and be absolutely devastated at the center of your being for their suffering. That's what this word compassion means. Eugene Peterson paraphrased this text by saying that his heart went out to the man. The Samaritan is the answer to who is my neighbor. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. Strangers become neighbors through compassion. Strangers become neighbors through compassion. When our heart aches at the affliction of others, this is the beginning of a process of what it takes to make a neighbor. It invites care and builds relationship. And I'm telling you right now, you might have a neighbor in your life you've been trying to build a relationship with for years and they've stiff-armed you. If you are there when the, when the, when the chips are down in their life, if you will sit with them when they, when they are sitting in ashes, other people don't do that. If you're willing to do that, it'll speak volumes to them. Compassion is an expression of love. The problem is we have become masters at cutting off our compassionate instincts. Because we just live such busy lives. Compassion, to have compassion or to be compassionate is just so daunting. And it's such an imposition on my schedule. I don't want to be compassionate. I don't want to have compassion for anybody else because it's going to derail my plans for the day. And so we've built up these defense mechanisms. We, we don't have eye contact. We, 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 we stay too busy to engage. We make excuses. We look at the suffering of someone and we calculate why they deserve it and why I don't really need to engage. We can sometimes spiritualize our lack of compassion for others. But let's approach this idea of compassion from a base level. What compassion ultimately comes down to is the humanity of others. Am I willing to see the humanity of the person in my midst? Regardless of their political persuasion, their, 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 their identity, their, their sexual orientation, their class, their race, regardless of any of that, am I willing to see the humanity of this person in my presence? This is also called empathy. See, there's a great danger when we dehumanize people. I had a friend in Milwaukee, a good pastor friend of mine. We would often talk about our divided times. And, and he was an African-American pastor. I was a white pastor. We, we pastored a multi-ethnic church that was tearing itself apart during the Black Lives Matter protests and, and during the George Floyd. And our church was just devouring itself. And we were just trying to figure out how to shepherd our people and have them keep their eyes on Jesus. And Anthony said, we are not acknowledging each other's humanity. I'll never forget when he said that to me. The opposite of compassion is cruel mercilessness. And if we're not careful, when we begin to dehumanize someone, even in a small way now, the far end of that road is merciless, cruel dehumanization. Look throughout human history. Millions of bodies in the 20th century alone. Millions of bodies. Think of the 6 million Jews who were dehumanized by Nazi Germany. Think of the 1.5 million who were killed in the, in the, uh, the Russian gulags. 
Think of the, the Tutsis, what, a one and a half million, uh, by some estimates, uh, Tutsis that were killed by ethnic cleansing in Rwanda in 1994. Think of the, the uh, some say upwards of 800,000 killed in the Sudan ethnic cleansing. Think about the 50 million babies that have been aborted since 1973. Think of the 21 million slaves today on planet Earth. 21 million. More slaves on planet Earth today than ever before in human history. The fact that there is a sex industry centered around trading human beings for sexual gratification is the absolute manifestation of disgusting dehumanization, and it exists everywhere. It's the enemy. It's the opposite of compassion. When someone is dehumanized, we don't have to consider them as people. We don't have to consider their rights, their soul, their value, their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations, their fears, their wounds, their life, their uniqueness, their beauty. We can just count them off. Done. Oh, that's who you voted for? Done. It's crazy to me. I fall into the temptation, and it's crazy to me that, that we do this. Every single day, you and I are tempted to deny the humanity of others, but, but let's not do this. The reason Christians should not dehumanize anybody, the reason we, above all people, should fight, to, should, be, should be anti-dehumanization is because you and I will never look upon another human being who is not bearing the image of God. The reason why you and I should never dehumanize a soul, no matter their lifestyle, their filthiness, their crudeness, there's not a, you will never look at a human being that is not made in the image of God. Every human being from every nation, tribe, and people group and language is made in the image of God. That's why it's such an offense to God to strip the humanity away from those who bear his image. And this is the foundation of neighboring. Because we just do this in simple ways. We just drive by, and we drive by a million houses. We throw a casual wave to our neighbor. We walk by desks at work. We walk by classmates at school, by teammates. We never pause to consider their story. Maybe we do. Often we don't. There's an author I really appreciate. He says, there is inhumanity in anonymity. I love that. He says, there's inhumanity and anonymity in whatever. And then he says, uh, without proximity, there will be no empathy. That has been a phrase I've clung to for the last 10 years. Without proximity, there will be no empathy. You know how easy it is to stand over here in my sanitized little bubble and look at those folks over there and just cast judgment and make decisions about their entire worth based on a sanitized separation where I don't have to address their humanity? Proximity, however... When we live with one another and we enter into each other's lives, it brings about empathy. We seek to understand. It creates community, beauty. What does it look like for you and for me to have our guts torn out with compassion for the atheist who is slandering the name of Jesus and actively working to destroy the church? What does it look like for you and me to have our guts torn out with compassion for the toxic ex-spouse that is determined to destroy your life and take your kids? What does it look like to have your guts torn out with compassion for the broken and deceived young woman who walks dejected into an abortion clinic? What does it look like to have your guts torn out with compassion for the LGBTQ activist who hurls insults in your face, calls you homophobic or hateful or transphobic? What does it look like to have compassion for the politician who stands for and empowers an ideology you absolutely abhor? Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he said, You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
See, at unspeakable cost to himself, Jesus extends compassion to the world. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was nailed to a cross. The wrath of God for your sin was poured out upon him. He experienced the mighty wrath of God. And as it was taking place, he said of his captors and abusers in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Strangers become neighbors through compassion. Who's your neighbor? May I, may we, may you learn to see stranger as neighbor. The second thing we see the Samaritan doing after he's moved with his, his guts with compassion, look at verse 34, just the first four words there. He went to him. Circle that. He went to him. What a novel idea. He didn't just go to his enemy and make sure that he was fine in the moment and then take off. He, he didn't check the race of his enemy. He didn't check the, the, the social class, his political persuasion. He didn't listen to what the talking heads on cable news had to say so he could decide what he was supposed to think about the guy laying there. He just saw a guy laying there and broken and naked and half dead and abandoned. And he stepped near him. He cared for him. This is the answer to what it means to be a neighbor. So here's the second thing I'd encourage you to write down. Strangers become neighbors through nearness. Strangers become neighbors through compassion, and that compassion compels us to draw near. This road between Jericho and Jerusalem was brutal. It was infamously brutal. There were thieves and robbers. It was dangerous. By stopping, very likely this man, the Samaritan, was, was exposing himself to great risk, but he stopped. It was a bloody pass. It was dangerous. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. one time said of this passage, he said, the priest and the Levite very likely thought to themselves, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? The Samaritan reversed the question. He said to himself, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? This is the thrust of Jesus' words. The religious lawyer asks a passive question. Who's my neighbor? Jesus answers with an active, it's not who is my neighbor, it's how can I be a loving neighbor? That's the question we ought to ask ourselves. How can I be a loving neighbor? I read this week that Jesus does not focus on the object of neighborly love, the Jewish victim laying on the side of the road, but instead he focuses on the subject, the Samaritan, who made himself a neighbor. The Samaritan chose to make himself a neighbor in this scenario. Now there's danger and there's threat and there's risk to drawing near. It can often come at great personal cost and sacrifice. I, I learned about what it looked like to be a neighbor actually after I became an adult and I started teaching and coaching. I learned what it meant to be a neighbor when I started coaching a bunch of high school kids. It's impossible to not love those little jerks. They're just, I love them. These high school kids I coached, I still have all their, they're friends with me on Facebook. I got the little plaques they gave me 20 plus years ago. But you know, you start to live with these kids and you coach these kids and you, and you do, and I was coaching in Idaho and our, our nearest road game was 80 miles away. We had a conference game that was 130 miles on the bus in northern Idaho or central Idaho. So I spent gobs of time with these kids on the bus. And you know, you earn the right to be heard as a coach. Kids begin to trust you. And so, like, I just wanted to sleep, man. Like, I kind of just please go to sleep. Just go to the back of the bus. We just lost by 46 points. Like, I just don't want to think about this right now. And invariably, a kid would come plot next to me and just want to start dumping his life out. And it was through kids, one after another after another, dumping their life out, being an imposition on my life, knocking on my house's door, entering into my life, that I began to think, wait a second, is God doing something here? These kids are desperate. To, they want someone to love them. And that's honestly the door that led me into ministry. Just being neighbors to high school kids. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor by location? Who's to your north, to your south, to your east and to your west? Literally, imagine your neighborhood right now. Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor by location? Who are the people you work with that you see every week? 
Who's your neighbor by education if you're a student? Who's your classmates, in other words? Who's your neighbor by recreation? Who are the people you hang out with leisurely? Who are the parents whose kids are on the same sports team as your kids? My wife and I have discovered that's a powerful ministry, just sitting in the stands and going to grab a burger after a game with parents on our kids' sports teams. Who is your neighbor by relation? What family members that you have a built-in relationship with that you could draw near to as a neighbor? And how might you engage your neighbors? How might you take the initiative? What might it look like for you to be, to be intentional about engaging with your neighbors, about asking God to give you his eyes, to ask questions of your neighbors, to seek to understand who they are, to concern yourself with the person and not their opinions, to draw near and to seek to know who they are. I've often said in ministry, 90% of ministry is just showing up. It's just being there. If you, if you walk in the hospital room, you knock on the front door, 90% of the challenges. The rest, the Holy Spirit takes over and God does what he's going to do. Just show up. Draw near. Who is your neighbor? May you, may I, may we learn to see stranger as neighbor. Lastly, let's look at verses 34 and 35. What does the Samaritan do? Well, he binds up his wounds, pours on oil and wine. He sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, take care of him for whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. What an imposition. I can imagine the Samaritan was on the road because he was doing business. He was going somewhere. His whole life was sidetracked by this guy. He had to give up his own wine, his own oil, his own transportation, his own money, his own effort, his own emotional burden. But the Samaritan's compassion is what compelled him to draw near. And this is the answer to what it means to be a neighbor. Strangers become neighbors through sacrifice. That's the third thing we see. Strangers become neighbors through compassion. Strangers become neighbors through nearness. And strangers become neighbors through sacrifice. To respond in compassion and draw near to those around us, it will cost you. It'll cost you financially. It'll cost you emotionally. It'll cost you relationally. It'll cost you spiritually. It's going to be hard. It'll take time. It'll be inconvenient. It's going to be frustrating. It'll be difficult and very, very, very messy. I've discovered in the church, we love to say, oh, we want to open the doors to the unbelieving. We want the lost to come. We want to be a lighthouse for the unbelievers until they show up. And you're like, oh, it's way too messy. Go away. This is way too uncomfortable. Because I've been there. I've been in that exact spot where I said, oh, I had this idealistic vision, like, oh, we want to reach all these lost people for Jesus. Uh, come, all you huddled masses, depraved and broken, you heretics. And then they bring their depravity and their heresy into the doors of your church, and it's super, super, super messy. It would be so much easier if we just remained a holy huddle. But how tragic. How tragic. Becky and I, we, in our last community, we had a young church, and so we were the old guys on staff, and so we'd often do fires. A lot of our staff were single, and we'd invite them over, and for fires in the backyard, and it's like 9.30, I'm like, are you ever going to go home? Like, are you ever going to leave? <laughs> I'm tired. But when I left, uh, my buddy Dave Cartwright, who's an awesome dude, we pastored together for a bunch of years, he's a young guy, single guy, I, I, uh, he was asked the question, uh, like, what's, we, we were sitting around the table right before we got ready to leave, we were kind of sharing highs and lows for the summer. And Dave, what's your high? What's your low? He's like, my high? He's like, coming to your house, just being a part of your family. I thought, really? We're just sitting around a fire doing nothing. Roasting marshmallows, talking stupid. Like, really? It's just crazy how that kind of stuff means the world to people. Pastors love saying things like, let's go do something great for God. We love rhetoric. 
I've been guilty of it myself. Let's change the world for Jesus. God does not expect you to do anything great. He's got greatness cornered. Like, he's got a market on greatness. There's one who's great. His name is God, all right? We're human beings. We're vessels. We're willing vessels. That's it. It's Christian rhetoric. And, and honestly, if I'm honest with you, kind of in a gross way, when, 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 when I would say those sorts of things in the past about churches I led, it was just really a thinly veiled way to promote the brand of the church or promote my personal brand and then grow the church so I could feel good about myself because there were so many people gathered and it gave me a sense of power and accomplishment. Just the honest, gross truth. We're not interested, like, we are interested in making the name of Jesus great. All we got to do is show up. I got this little, I wasn't going to do this, but I brought this because I wasn't sure. I think sometimes when we think about reaching our neighbors, reaching out to our neighbors, it's terrifying. What if they reject me? What if they're mean? What if it's messy? And we think about going and doing something. If I say to this glove, glove, pick up that Bible. Glove, pick up that Bible. Glove, pick up that Bible. It's, not, it's just a glove. It's, it's nothing. It, there's, no, there's no power in it. But when you fill the glove with power and you say to this glove, Glove, pick up the Bible. It's amazing the things this glove can do once it's been empowered. When God tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, he's not calling us to go as just a glove. We're not going, you have nothing. Come on. You're just as broken as your neighbor. But we have Jesus in us. We have the spirit of living God alive in us. We don't go alone. He's told us that we are to make disciples of all nations, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. we are to go with the hope of Christ. We don't go alone. God, by the power of his Spirit, indwells us as individuals, indwells his church, and we go in the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing the truth of the gospel to a broken and lost world, to the poor, the oppressed, the blind, and the afflicted. It's God in us. And I get it. I've, I've given myself a thousand excuses why I can't do it. And they always were self-centered, and they didn't acknowledge the reality that it's Christ in me. Not me. So all God asks you to do is just be faithful in the little things. He's not going to say, did you do great things for me? He's going to say, were you faithful? It's pretty straightforward. You know, I, I, we, we, we released our, our, uh, our strategic plan in June, and I, I love our strategic plan for how we believe God is calling us to make disciples who, who have faith in Jesus, who are growing in the likeness of Jesus, and who are leading others to follow Jesus. We believe that's what a disciple is, and we're doing everything we can to make that happen. When I was sharing our strategic vision uh, and our strategic plan in June, uh, I had sort of, I had this representative person, this representative family, Joe and Jenny Jackson from Jackson County. And, and by doing some research and local census information, there's 170,000 people in Jackson County who have rejected the gospel or who don't know Jesus. And I said, there's 170 Joe and Jenny Jacksons in, Mil uh, in, uh, in uh, Medford or in the Rogue Valley or in Jackson County. That's, what do we do with 170,000? I don't know, like, that's okay. What am I supposed to do about that? You know, I think, that's, I think that was maybe a mistake for us to throw that huge number up there. But you know what? There's a Joe and Jenny Jackson who lives to your north. And there's a Joe and Jenny Jackson who goes to work with you. And there's a Joe and Jenny Jackson whose kids are on the same soccer team as your kids. There's a couple. That's all God's asking you to be faithful. It's just who is in your midst? Who is your actual neighbor? God is inviting you to see the stranger as neighbor through compassion, through nearness, through sacrifice. These people are not a project. We're not trying to notch them in some belt. We're not trying to grow the numbers of our church so we can brag about how big our church is. We want to see people who are destined to spend an eternity separated from Jesus, have their face turned to Christ, get born again, and enter the, enter the family of God for the glory of God. That's what this is about. As I think about that, I just hear the words of Jesus on that 
Sabbath day in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. Why have I come? Well, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to see the blind receive their sight, to see the oppressed experience liberation. I think of Jesus looking at the unbelieving world in Jackson County, but I think of Jesus looking at the unbelieving world in your neighborhood. Those people to your north, to your south, to your east, to your west, those people who share a cubicle with you, those few people you know. I think of Jesus looking at them, and he sees the poor, people who are spiritually impoverished. He sees the captive, people who are held in bondage by their sin. They may think they're free, but they're actually imprisoned by their sin. He sees the blind who are absolutely and utterly lost in spiritual darkness, blind in every way. He sees the oppressed, people who are laboring under the crushing weight of loss and grief and death. And even in the midst of their brokenness and their fallenness and their depravity, I'm reminded of what Paul says about Jesus in Romans 5, 8. God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still poor, still captive, still blind, still oppressed, Jesus died for us. And I think of my own testimony. I think of those of you that have faith in Jesus today, those of you that have been born again, there was a moment where Jesus looked at you and he had compassion on you. He didn't ignore you in your suffering. He drew near to you. He didn't leave you alone. He, he, he sacrificed greatly that you, might be, that you might be saved, that your sins were nailed to the cross. He died in your place, suffering the wrath your sin deserves, that you might have his righteousness and become a child of the Most High God. You and me, as I look at the story of the Good Samaritan, we're the half-dead man. That's the role we play in this story. We're the half-dead man. Except we're not just half-dead, we're all the way dead. Sin has ravaged us. It has killed us. We are dead-dead. And Jesus, he's the despised Samaritan. The world despised him, Remember? But he came and he had compassion to you and to me. He drew near to us. He sacrificed for us. He brought us new life. Jesus, the despised Good Samaritan, has shown us what it means to be a good neighbor. And as men and women who've been shown eternal compassion through God, by his son Jesus, as men and women who've been drawn near to by God, as men and women who've been purchased at a tremendous sacrifice, we have the ultimate example of what it looks like for you and for me to be a neighbor. And we can now understand, we can begin to understand who our neighbor is, can't we? We can learn to see the stranger as a neighbor. God, may you stir compassion for others in our guts by the power of your spirit. God, may you give us courageous urgency to draw near to those in our midst who don't know you. God, may you fill our cup to overflowing so that we can sacrificially, sacrificially love our neighbors as ourselves. Be much easier to forget about the stranger in our midst, wouldn't it? Be much easier to go on living comfortable, isolated, compassionless lives. How devastating. Who's your neighbor? Well, when you came in today, you would have got a little piece of paper like this. If you, if you want to take that out. If you didn't get one, we have some in the, the, in the back at the connection desk. The top says the work of neighboring. This is just a simple tool I want to put in your hands. Whether you use it or not, it's just something to remind you that this requires intentionality compassionate urgency. On the left-hand side, it says neighbor in location, labor in vocation, neighbor in relation, and neighbor prayers. Who are nine people in your world you can be praying for? Or just one. Just start with one. 
And if you don't know the names of your neighbors, that's what the right side is for. It's time to start knocking on doors or wait until they, I'm looking at the Waylands out here and I know how you guys live your life. I know that you guys wait until you see neighbors going to the mailbox and you have a stack of letters there because you want to meet your neighbors. And so you grab the stack of letters and you run out just to meet your neighbors. I know that you watch when your neighbors are going to the pool and you, you wait until your neighbors are in the pool and you go swim in the pool so you can be by them that you might learn their name. What a beautiful example of being intentional and living missionally. What would it look like if we did that? If we just began, when we drove into our driveway, rather than thinking about all the things we're going to do when we get home, if we looked into the lights, into the home of our neighbor, and begin to imagine what's going on in that family, and begin to pray for them, whether we know them by name or not, God, open, op- open doors. Give me opportunity to know this neighbor, to love this neighbor. Would you take this home? Would you begin to write down the names of people and honestly pray for them, that God would give you his eyes and his heart towards them, the, the courageous urgency to draw near to them, that he would stir you with compassion and, and a willingness to live sacrificially? And would you draw a map of your neighborhood? Just draw streets and little box squares and write the names of your neighbors so you can begin to know who God, this is your little mission field. Would you do that? It's a tool. It's just a tool to spark a burden in your heart. What would it look like if you and me and our little church here in Medford, Oregon begin to live like the Good Samaritan? If we begin to be neighbors, the kind of neighbors that have compassion, and draw near and love and live sacrificially. Oh God, would you use our church to move many strangers to neighbors? Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful for this text. And God, I'm thankful for the way in which, as I read through and study this text, God, you have just brought such conviction in my life personally. And God, you continue to reveal how selfish I am and how often I do choose comfort and ease rather than imposition. And engagement, God, I confess that to you today. And God, I pray for our church, God. I do. I pray that we would, we would recognize we don't do this alone, Lord. If, if we have been born again, if we, are, if we are saved, if we are in the family of God, if we're Christians, God, that you've given this great gift, this great blessing. We have the good news that sets the poor or sets the captive free. Good news that liberates the poor and gives sight to the blind and liberates the oppressed. And God, would you just give us an understanding of what it means for us to, to lift our eyes and to see our neighbor, not as a stranger, but as neighbor. God, open up opportunities, divine opportunities for us to engage with neighbors, whether they're neighbors physically in our home or they're neighbors at work or school or in our family and our places of recreation. God, would you use our little church, this little gathering of people here in Midford, Oregon, God, to, to bring the hope of Jesus to at least one or two or ten, whatever, God. It's your, it's, your, it's your business, not ours. Just help us be faithful with the little bit you've given us, God. I continue to pray for our church, God, that you would burden our hearts for the things that burden your heart, God. You would give us your eyes to see the world the way you see the world, God. God, may we be a church that doesn't, I don't know, God, just help us not be too comfortable, Lord. And if we're too comfortable today, God, would you make us uncomfortable? Would you mobilize our church, God? Help us be the tangible expression of Jesus to our neighbors and friends for your glory. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus.